Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here? One of my writers, in this case, Matt, thanks Matt, has written me a script, The Cleveland Strangler, House of Horrors. <coughs> Sorry. Don't die. Please. I have a cold. My kids started school last week, and a friend of mine's got kids who are a little bit older than mine, just a couple of years. And so he's been going through all this stuff like a couple of years before me. And he's like, dude, when they start school, you're just going to be sick all the time. I'll be like, meh, I don't know about that. I got a pretty strong immune system. I'm all good. <laughs> and then immediately, my kid on literally the first day of school gets a cold. And now I have that cold. And uh, so, yeah, just uh, to let you know, for the next uh, 14 years of my channels, I am going to sound a lot more nasally as my kids consistently get sick. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that line note was starting a, what I'm sure is going to be an absolutely horrible video about the Cleveland Strangler, his House of Horrors. The last time we made a video about House of Horrors, it was about Ed Gein. I think we even used the same title, House of Horrors, because honestly, every true crime podcast you make a story about Ed Gein, it's going to be about the House of Horrors, because, well, he kept some really weird in a lot of different boxes in his House of Horrors. Yeah, you're right. That's right. Okay, let's uh, let's jump into it before I uh, before my voice completely dies. Ladies and gentlemen, dearest Simon, let's take a trip. The time is December 2011. Ooh, I mean, 10 years ago, but compared to some of the other stuff on this channel, fairly recent. The place is Cleveland's Ohio. It's late at night and we're walking down the sidewalk enjoying the cool breeze on our face. It's a night like any other. And then we hear a noise. Is that demolition equipment? Let's investigate, shall we? No! <laughs> what are you doing? It's night, late at night, in a town I don't know where it's... I don't even know it came up the other day. I've got no idea if someone pointed to a map, uh, asked me to point to a place where Ohio is on a map of the US. I'll be like... In the middle somewhere. Um, I'm in a place I don't know. I'm not going to investigate anything. I'm just going to keep on walking. That's called courage. Honestly, I'm probably listening to a podcast, so I wouldn't even hear it anyway. Around in the corner, we turn onto a street by the name of Imperial Avenue, and as we draw closer, we see that yes, it is indeed a demolition team. They're parked outside of a house, the address being 12205 Imperial Avenue. On the outside, the house looks nice, white in color, stone steps, and a rather intricate front door. The only shoddy-looking detail is the handmade railing on the porch. Nothing out of the ordinary about it, you'd have never have guessed what truly happened within those normal-looking walls. Oh god, this is, this is the house of horror, isn't it? And they're demolishing it because no one's going to buy. It's like, I bet Ed Gein's house isn't there anymore. Because no one wants to buy Ed Gein's house. No one wants to buy the Cleveland Strangler's house. No one wants to buy... I don't know. There were, wasn't there a... So, in Europe, Hitler used to make, in the Second World War, he'd make these speeches from balconies. At, at like, hotels and places. And there was... Uh, they've been removed. Like, generally, people... They, they went around and they would just remove the balconies where Hitler gave speeches because they didn't want, like, weird neo-Nazis coming to them and be like, this is where Hitler gave his kill the Jews speech. <laughs> and there were many! Um, so I think they removed those. No one wants to live in, uh, in the Cleveland Strangler's house. And honestly, if they do, they should be put on some sort of list. Revving up the massive excavator, the demolition team go to town on the house, utterly destroying it. The walls crash and crumble, the roof breaks apart and caves in, the porch gets crushed underneath the debris, and the door is blasted inwards off its hinges. Minutes go by as we watch, and soon enough, there's nothing left. Once more, nothing too out of the ordinary. But then we hear it. The cheers. It's now that we finally see the people. More importantly, we hear them. Cries of hallelujah and amen. 
Tear it down! Rings out in the night as people line the streets, watching on at the destruction of this simple looking home. I can't do those. <laughs> that hurt my voice so much. <laughs> We're gonna have to. I'm just gonna tone it down for this episode. It's gonna be fun. No, it's not supposed to oh. be funny. But I'm gonna have to take it a little bit easier or I'm gonna hurt myself. That's because two years prior in 2009, a SWAT team charged inside the very house with the intent of arresting its sole occupant, a man by the name of Anthony Sal. Neighbors at the time would have described Anthony as a kind man, sweet and neighborly, if perhaps a bit odd. It's now, dear friends, that we realize the discovery made by that SWAT team on that dark day, only two days before Halloween, would shake all of Ohio to its core, along with answering the questions surrounding the disappearances of a multitude of women two years prior. As the darkness closes in around us once more, let's settle down as I relate to you all the tale of a monster that had the proper steps been taken could have been stopped long before it actually was and at least a few lives could have been saved. This is the tale of Anthony Sal, the Cleveland Strangler. Oh, is this, this is, this feels, I feel like this is going to be an episode because like Matt's like, they please did take proper steps. But I get the feeling, oh, I can't remember if it's Matt. I'm sorry if it's not you, Matt. But there was an episode I recorded last week and I was like super disagreeing on whether the police are incompetent or not with the author. <laughs> I think it was Matt. So this could be another one where I'm like, no, the police are just, they're doing all right. And look, I'm the first one to be like, police, do your job, come on, what the f***? But in that, in that episode, I can't remember the details about it because I have the memory of a sieve. Does that make sense? I have a brain like a sieve? Memory of a sieve? Well, I don't suppose sieve's got any memory. It's a sieve, so that does work. But, oh my god, I've even forgotten what I'm talking about. I don't think I'm very well. <laughs> um, I was just disagreeing about the police incompetence thing. Born into disaster. Let's travel back in time even more as we set the scene. America in the mid-1950s and 60s, a time when the South was full of racism and segregation was still in full swing. It blows my mind. And I know, look, look, I'm British. My country's done plenty of, you know, messed up stuff. <laughs> Not that I was personally involved with it, but yo. Um, but also, the 1960s, like my, my parents were like kids in the 1960s and there was still segregation in America in the south which is kind of nuts i remember i guess i remember i went to uh i think it was atlanta and they had some exhibition going on this was years ago i was must have been in my early 20s and uh, i guess my just knowledge of american history wasn't very good because i went to this exhibition and it was about segregation in atlanta and how there were like these separate toilets and stuff and i'm like why do these photos look so good like this looks like it was relatively recent past and i was kind of thinking yeah it'd be some like 19th century and I was like, and it kind of just blew my mind how recent it was, which I know is going to come as a surprise to absolutely no one listening to this. But it's like, I guess just my knowledge of that American history just wasn't very good. And I was kind of like, that's really recent. That's, that's intense. Enough on this. Let's move on. At the time, it was difficult for African-American folks to make a good living and provide for their families. So during that period, there were many people and their families who migrated to the North in search of a fairer life with more opportunities. This goes for one Claudia Garrison, known to many as Gertrude. She was a single mother who moved to Ohio at the time in order to provide for a better life for her children, which included Anthony Edward Sal, born on August the 19th, 1959, in East Cleveland, Ohio. Sal was one of seven children born to Claudia, and she raised all of them under one roof. The house became even more crowded years later as one of Sal's sisters passed away from a chronic illness, so it came down to her mother to raise her own seven children. Oh my. Talk about a full house, and we'll get the Olsen twins on the horn. Oh god, I'm sure this is a reference to that TV show Full House that I've never seen, and I don't know who the Olsen- is this the Olsen twins? 
Were they those like pair of girl actors? Were they in a movie called The Parent Trap? No, no, uh, Lindsay Lohan. Like the remake? Was that someone else? They were those twins, right? I don't, I can't even remember what they looked like. Quick note, but if you don't understand the reference, Cyber, what the hell was your childhood? My childhood was British. We had our own shows, which I also apparently didn't see. But I mean, I don't even, I don't know what Full House is. It's here that once again we meet an old friend of the channel, good old childhood abuse. However, it wasn't so much against Saul himself, on the contrary, it was against the children of her own daughter. Yep, that's right, Garrison was downright awful to her own grandnieces and nephews, going so far as to have them strip naked and beat them bloody with electrical cables. Ah, yes. Uh, once again, we return to the old, familiar, well-trodden territory of uh, our, our protagonist, sorry, our antagonist, having been abused as a child. Don't f*** up your kids. We've been here before. Perhaps it was from the stress of looking after so many children, but that's no excuse. There's never an excuse for something like this. Yeah, I'm surprised you even wrote that, Matt. <laughs> it's like, oh no, it was really hard raising seven kids, so it was okay that they gave them just a little bit of a beating. She tormented those children physically and verbally, and perhaps just as terrible, her own children watched on, absorbing the sight of the terrible treatment. Oh, I'm sorry, so uh, today's antagonist was not himself beaten. He was the child of this woman, and he just watched her beating other people. Which, again, I mean, that is its own form of child abuse, and uh, it's not going to be a recipe for success. Spoiler alert. Anthony was reportedly a very quiet and shy child while in public, very timid and socially awkward, but at home it was a different story. He'd become aggressive and angry, taking all of his dark thoughts out on his younger siblings and other younger female relatives around him. He didn't have a positive father figure in his life either, so he emulated not only his abusive mother, but also the abusive male family members that would come day by day by day. Children are like sponges, absorbing everything they experience as they grow up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My kid was like, she dropped something the other day. She's like, Jesus Christ. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> where you get that from? Oh, my God, there was another one. <laughs> We're on holiday. And she gets, I really got to stop swearing around my kids. And I have now because I didn't quite realize she's at that age where you have to stop swearing around them. And uh, we're on holiday. We go into the sea. And I'm just like carrying her into the sea. And we get in. And she's like, Dad, it's f***ing cold. <laughs> Uh-oh. And there are other people around. And I'm like, hopefully they didn't notice. And they're like, that's a dad word. It got to the point where he would actually rape his younger female cousins, many of them already being sexually abused by many of the older men in the family. What the f***? I know this was implied, and in that previous one, like, the people came round and there was abuse and, and all of this stuff. But, uh, yeah, in my mind, I was kind of like, yeah, but not like it. Uh, not like. And there's like, oh, no, no, sexual abuse and rape and pedophilia. And, uh, yeah, brilliant. Two pages in. <laughs> Yay, it's Monday. Monday morning. First thing I'm recording all week. Why do I do this to myself? If that made your skin crawl just imagining it, congratulations, you're a good person with a sound mind. I don't know if you're a good person with a sound mind just because you're like, that's horrible. It's like you could be a murderer and be like, that's some horrible shit, I just kill people. Um, place of stability. As Sal grew into a young man, the city around him was changing before his eyes. Many of the jobs and opportunities his mother had come to find had begun to dry up. People were losing their jobs and businesses were closing their doors. In their place, gangs and crime began to take advantage of the decline of the neighborhood, and things such as drugs and prostitution became more and more prevalent on the streets. In an attempt to escape this at the age of 18, Anthony Sal joined the U.S. Marine Corps on January the 24th, 1978. I know how this goes. There's either two options, and I... I'm just going to take a guess. I don't know the answer. Um, is either one, he joins the military and it straightens him out and then he goes on to lead a productive life. Or the other one is, like, either he fails at, like, 
basic training or whatever they call it or within a few months he's just like too rebellious or he can't follow orders or he does something terrible and he gets kicked out and then he goes down a life of crime i'm gonna bet it's the the latter because this is the casual criminalist a true crime podcast rather than like the success of people who turn their lives around hey spare me the self-help crap okay you're not a guru and then there's some upbeat music you know your self-help podcasts <laughs> so i know what you're thinking where's the dishonorable discharge where's the desertion oh wait it's it's not gonna be like this okay in cases like this is fairly commonplace for the subject to end their military service on rather bad terms surprisingly this wasn't the case for old sal he actually excelled in the military completed basic training and going on to be a good marine cool it is i know that uh, I, I, people are very finicky about stuff and i think i said like in one video he joined the navy and went to basic training and people were in the comments like simon the navy don't call it basic training <laughs> that's the marines and I'm like, oh my god, who cares? Uh, being stationed at several bases across the country as well as a post overseas in Japan. Did not expect this. During a seven-year stretch of the military, he received many awards and honors. These included a Good Conduct Medal with one service star, a Sea Service Deployment Ribbon, a Certificate of Commendation, a merit Meritorious Mast, and two Letters of Appreciation. It seemed that all Sal really needed was stability, a place where there was structure, rules, and order. The Marines provided that for him, so he thrived. His formal, honorable discharge came on January the 18th, 1985, and afterwards he returned to Cleveland, now aged 25. Okay, so a rather rough and, frankly, quite horrendous start, but it seems Anthony was able to turn things around and have a rather good career with the armed forces. Yeah, it seems he got a ton of medals and shit. That's cool. If it didn't sort him out. Ah, oh, I was really hoping this sorted him out. You'd think that would have set him down a good path from here on out, yes? Well, not quite. And he also didn't see combat, I'm assuming. Um, when was when was this? 1970s? So that's... Oh, God, my American history again. That's after Vietnam, right? When was the first Gulf War? Oh, you know, that must have been a period of relative peace. Is that right? Or is there some other war? There could be another war tucked in there. Korea was like the 50s, right? Look. The could to it's America. There could totally be another war tucked in there that I've never heard of. But I'm assuming he didn't see service because Matt didn't say he did. Um, so there's no opportunity for him to like suffer some horrific PTSD from seeing his mates have their heads cut off or something horrific like that. He just seemed to have a fairly non-intense career. A 15-year stretch. Returning back home to a place filled with negativity and crime, it didn't take long for Anthony to be dragged down into the depths once again. Cleveland's back in the 1980s was very much in the gutter. No offense to anyone from Cleveland. Crime had rocketed and gangs roamed the streets without issue. Drugs in the city had a vice-like grip, especially crack cane. And sad to say, some of the people hit hardest by this downward spiral were folks of the African-American community. Crack was running rampant through black neighborhoods. People were hooked on it, and their lives were taking a turn for the worst. Is there... And because of my ignorance, I, I could get this horribly wrong. But is it, wasn't there, it's either a historical fact or a conspiracy theory. There wasn't the CIA, like, I need to check the CIA's cooking crack in their basement. Doing something with crack and spreading it in, like, poor communities, aka black communities, in, like, the, around this time or something crazy like that, allegedly. I feel like that's something... If it wasn't a conspiracy theory, I'm, I, I should have made a video on. And if it, I'll, afterwards I'm going to look that up. And if this isn't, that's going to be a great episode for another YouTube channel that I do called Into the Shadows, because that's some crazy. Shit. I've seen addiction in my life. I've lost loved ones, loved ones to the plague that is addiction, as of many. So I think it's fair to say it's not hard to imagine the struggle of folks of Cleveland back then and those who are still feeling the effects to this day. So 
As far as Sal is concerned, the removal of the structure and order that he needed and had had over the last seven years threw him into his own downward spiral. He was unemployed, had become addicted to drugs and alcohol, and soon rage took hold. In 1989, he came upon a pregnant woman who he invited back to his home. There he bound her, gagged her, tortured her, and then raped her. Thankfully, she managed to escape and report him to the police. Oh my lord. That is so intense. Like, there's no downward spiral, like, into just you know more and more aggression and more and more heinous acts just like straight into this okay to quote he choked me real hard because my body started tingling i thought i was going to die sal was arrested and charged with kidnapping rape and attempted rape shockingly enough sal was offered a plea deal by the prosecution to which if sal pled guilty he would only get 15 years in the pen and at most would need to register as a sex offender once he was released why they even bothered offering this brute any sort of leniency is beyond me although perhaps it had something to do with outstanding his outstanding military service also 15 years is a fairly hefty punishment isn't it i mean i know this is america we're talking about here but i feel like people who get who murder people in the uk i feel like 15 years 20 years is a service and as horrible as what he did is he didn't murder her am i being optimistic perhaps but that's only because that makes sense to me anthony of course took the deal and pled guilty to all of the charges and in 1990 he was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison 5 to 15 what does that mean surely you've got to have certainty on the length of your prison sentence <laughs> be like you could be in there for 5 to uh 15 be like mate that's a big difference <laughs> Can you tell me how long? Just an aside, though there's a good chance that this is relevant, I'll let you be the judge. By the time Anthony Sal was put away, the bodies of three women in his neighborhood had already been discovered. Their cases remain unsolved to this day. Like I said, I'll leave the final judgment to you, Simon, and to our dear listeners. But it is rather convenient if you ask me that Sal had four years of relative quiet before the rape charge, and it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It definitely does, because I'm getting the feeling that he intended to murder her, because we said she escaped so yeah yeah definitely need to look into those previous four cases maybe we could get some forensic evidence and see what's up while locked up he was given multiple psychological evaluations and each one came back the same anthony sal was diagnosed as being a low-risk offender he tortured someone what the f Ah, oh, he's low risk. What did he do? Oh, he kidnapped raped tortured intended to murder but failed low risk Low risk is like Bernie Madoff. <laughs> what the f***? Like, young... <laughs> young dude who's tortured, raped, and attempted murder someone is high risk. And, uh, like, old man who committed financial crimes is low risk. <laughs> What's going down? Someone who could easily slip back into society with the likelihood of him repeating his untoward behavior being slim to none. Basically, he wouldn't have to go door to door and introduce himself, outing himself as a sexual predator to the community once he was released. Wait, do people actually have to do that? Is that actually a thing? Like, if you've gone to prison for, like, being a rapist or whatever, then you move somewhere, you have to go and introduce yourself as like, Hi, I'm Mike, I'm the rapist. Um, friendly, <laughs> friendly local neighborhood rapist. Isn't there just some database where you go online and you could see how many sexual predators there are in your area. I wonder if there's something like that here. I'm going to look that up afterwards, see how many predators are in my area. How worrying. I bet those psychiatrists feel pretty dumb now. It also helped that while in jail he was a model prisoner, he was charming, helpful, followed instructions, and didn't give the guards any trouble. The return of order, the return of structure, was doing wonders for him, though the darkness was always there, even 
if the others couldn't see it. He applied for parole several times while serving his sentence, but despite good behavior, he was repeatedly denied. He ended up serving the whole 15 years behind bars before he was set free in the year 2005. It should also be noted that while in custody, Sal's DNA was never taken, despite the fact that we had the technology at the time. What are you doing? I feel like now when you get arrested, they, they be taking your DNA. I don't know, some countries you fly to, I believe America included, they'll take your fingerprints when he gets into the airport. And you're not taking his DNA? He's in prison for 15 years for, like, heinous crimes. This would have been mighty helpful later on, I'm sure. It was in the same year that Anti-Sal moved into his new home, the house at 12205 Imperial Avenue. He was honestly doing good for himself for a while. He got a job at a rubber factory, had stability in his life, he even got himself a girlfriend named Laurie Frazier. However, things seemed to fall off by the end of the year 2007. It lost its factory job due to simply refusing to show up. He started collecting unemployment checks, and it started drinking and doing drugs again, and because of this, Laurie left him. Talk about a series of unfortunate events, and honestly, all of his own making. Because of all of this, something in Anthony snapped, and it was in 2007 that everything got worse, and women started to disappear. I really wish this guy just stayed in the military. I know, like, well, he did seven years or whatever. Can't he just sign up for another seven years? That would have been so much better for everyone. And obviously he was doing well. He even did well in prison. Like any sort of structure, this guy just needs to be told what to do. Without a trace. It was in May 2007 when the first disappearance occurred. 35-year-old Crystal Dozier was a mother of seven, and much like many who lived in the area, she was addicted to drugs, namely crack cocaine. Her habit only intensified after one of her children sadly passed away, so she took to the streets in order to get money in order to feed a terrible addiction. One night, she met with Anthony Sal on the street and was invited back to his home with the allure of drugs, drink, and the chance to make some money. She took him up on his offer. She was never seen again. Her family reported her missing, but almost nothing came of it and we'll revisit why soon enough. I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna guess, it's got something to do with police incompetence and possibly racism. Just a guess. It was around this time that the neighbors at Imperial Avenue started noticing a rather putrid odor. They started complaining to local officials and anyone they could speak with. It almost smelled as if something had died in the area. However, the health inspector was sent to investigate didn't look far into it at the time. The reason? There was a corner store right across the street and it was run by a number of folks of the Arab persuasion. <laughs> Okay, just a, a little bit of unexpected racism just sprinkled in there. I was expecting, you know, it's like, oh, you know, uh, other, other, other racism and stuff. What, what was the one we just mentioned? Um, oh yeah, the the family being ignored about it going missing, and perhaps there being some racism there. Don't know yet. I'm just guessing. And to just a little bit of extra racism just sprinkled in. That's right, these morons brushed the complaints of these people off using the stereotype of Arab folks having a pungent smell as the reason we really have no words here. The laziness and sheer ignorance towards these people is quite staggering. A little over a year later, in June 2008, another woman vanished. This was 33-year-old nursing assistant Tushana Kolder. Much like Doja, she was a mother with several children, and she also had a well-established drug problem along with several run-ins with the law. She disappeared, and her family reported her missing, and nothing happened started to see a pattern here. Ex-boyfriend Marcus Johnson has been quoted as saying she loved her kids. She would talk about them all the time, and she just had this big smile on her face whenever she could see them. At this point, the smell in the community only got worse. Once again, the health inspector came to check out what was causing the problem. The whole Arabs with an odor explanation is quickly and thankfully ruled out. However, they didn't replace it with a much better one. Instead, they blamed it on the sausage store named Ray's Sausage Shop that was next to the house, blaming it on the poor ventilation system. I don't know, butchers have a smell. 
But if the butcher smells like rotting human bodies, which I assume is what this smell is, people are gonna be like, maybe I will shop in the other butcher. Maybe I will order my meat online. Maybe I will uh, go anywhere else. Anywhere. Because if your butcher smells like rotting flesh, don't shop there. Now, I know sausages usually have a smell to them, but if they honestly thought it was sausages causing that particular stench, well, I'm flabbergasted. It's here that we need a woman by the name of Vanessa Gay. Much like the other women who'd gone missing, she lived a relatively normal life until she reached her 30s, and that's when she started abusing drugs. One night, she came upon a man who invited her back to her house to smoke and to drink. A man was Anthony Sal. Almost as soon as she stepped in front of his home, Sal punched her in the face and forced her to strip naked in front of him. He then proceeded to rape this poor defenseless woman over and over again until she managed to escape and report the attack to the police and nothing happened. What's going on? Last time he got 15 years in prison for this. This would be the time they throw away the key because why well, repeat offended? Like there's gonna be no plea deal the second time around, but nothing happens? What is going on? I don't get that. You read that right. She reported this assault and repeated rape to the authorities and they did nothing. Apparently back in 2008, the Cleveland police simply didn't have proper procedure when it came to dealing with rape victims. What? Because that's, that's not a major and relatively common crime, really. And even less so when the victim was a drug addict. They said they couldn't do anything about it unless she came down to the station herself and reported it in detail. And all the while, the dispatcher sounded bored and uninterested about the whole ordeal. Violated and humiliated and given the impression the police couldn't care less what a drug addict had to say, Vanessa didn't officially report the attack. Tell you what, if someone phones up and tells the police and tells them that they've been raped, how about you be like, you have to come down to the station. You have to. Otherwise, it'll happen again. He'll do it to someone else. You've got to do it. Come on, police. And they're just like, oh, if you want to, you have to come down here. It's going to be a big hassle for you. Are you sure you really want to? Don't you want to be rather doing those drugs that you love so much? Jesus. Do we now see the problem here? Had the police taken Vanessa seriously, so many lives could have been saved. Had the police actually done anything to investigate the previous two vanishings and not simply written them off as worthless drug addicts who disappeared into the wind, everything that happened afterwards could have been stopped. But they didn't. They couldn't be bothered to do their damn jobs. And because of that, the violence continued unabated. Prejudice and bias at its worst, everybody. Yeah, and uh, in that last episode, and again, I'm sorry, Matt, if it's not you, who I was disagreeing with um, about police incompetence, and I thought the police were doing a reasonable job. On this one, Matt, we're on exactly the same page because this is embarrassingly bad. The vanishings continue. Following Vanessa's escape, several more women would disappear without a trace. Blushanda Long was 25 years old when she disappeared in August 2008. She was the youngest of Sal's victims, got pregnant at 14, and by the age of 17, already had three children. Another troubled woman, caught in the grips of a monster. Next was 45-year-old Michelle Mason in August 2008. She, too, was a drug addict at one point in her life, even after having her two sons, and on top of that, she was diagnosed with HIV. However, after an incident where she was shot in the eye, she decided to turn her life around. Kicking her drug addict habit, she dedicated herself to her children, did plenty of work around the community, and volunteered at the local HIV center. She wanted to live her best life, but sadly, she never had the chance to. Tonya Carmichael was next to go. 53 years old, she too was a mother, and she too had a drug problem. Even with her addiction, she tried to live her life to the fullest, studying at Koyoga Community College, as well as going on multiple Christ cruises and outings. It was in November of 2008 that she went missing. Then, in December 2008, another opportunity to end the nonsense arose. By this point, Sal could be found wandering the streets looking for bits of scrap metal to sell for money, which was pretty much how he was sustaining himself at this point. It was on the streets that he met a woman by the name of Gladys Wade. Sal attacked Wade on the street in broad daylight by the corner store by his house. 
He dragged her into his house, where he proceeded to beat on her for several minutes, even throwing her through a glass pane. She fought back, however, scratching up his arms and face, managing to escape. She found a police car nearby and reported the attack, and then the officers drove to the house. It's crazy. I want to say it's crazy that he would just attack someone in broad daylight like this. But so far, he's been committing all these horrible crimes, and he's being quite brazen about it. People have escaped after he's raped them, and nothing has happened. Of course he's going to be brazen, because he's like, no one's stopping me. I'm a monster, and I can do what I want, and no one's doing anything to stop me. Come on, police. This is embarrassing. Now, at this time, the smell should have been unbearable, yet the officers didn't have anything to say about it. Regardless, they spoke with Saul about the incident, and he told police that she had tried to rob him. Common sense would dictate that the woman who reported the whole thing and looked significantly worse was the one telling the truth, right? She should be treated as a victim, and he should be arrested, right? There's no way that they would both be arrested for this, right? Well, sadly, that's precisely what happened. Both Saul and Wade were arrested, and after Wade was treated, they both, both were released. Really? I don't even know. I've got no words anymore. This is, like, unbelievable. Again, another instance when the police could have fixed this whole thing, saved all the lost lives to come, but they didn't. They had their heads too far up their asses to do what was needed, and because of that, more women died, starting the new year in 2009 with the vanishing of 44-year-old Kim Yvette Smith. She was the only victim not to have children and was the caretaker of her wheelchair-bound father when she disappeared. She had drug problems before, but she wanted to get her life together after getting out of prison. When interviewed, Smith's aunt, Christine Shoby, stated her only desire when she got out of jail was to get back on her feet and take care of her father. 2009 continued to be a busy year for Sal as five more women would go missing. Nancy Cobb and Imelda Hunter, aged 45 and 47 respectively, would both go missing in April of that year. Nancy was a grandmother of five and Imelda was a bookworm with three children, a fourth dying after birth and both had issues with drugs, a sadly common threat in this case. After that, it was reported that another woman had been attacked and raped, yet managed to escape. So, third, fourth person who's managed to, has been attacked and escaped, and yet this guy is still out there getting on with this stuff? F*** you, police. She went to the police, and they actually did a rape kit and nothing happened. The kit sat there at the station, collecting dust as things kept on going down the drain. Hands down, some of the worst police incompetence that I've ever seen. Then in June 2009, two more women were lost. Janice Webb was the first one, age 48. She loved her family dearly and was known as a prankster, but she'd been suffering from a crack addiction for some time before she vanished. Next was Talasia Forston, a mother of three who also had a crack addiction many believed to stem from the fact that she was adopted. Talasia's mother was relentless about following up with the police about her daughter, calling them every single day about it, but nothing was done. The number of missing women simply continued to rise, and the files would continue to collect dust on a desk somewhere in the police department. The final victim was Diane Turner, 38 years old. She had a difficult childhood, marred with abuse and drug issues, but she managed to become a mother to six children before she went missing. Ex-boyfriend James Martin stated in an interview that she didn't bother nobody. Some of those girls, they'll go out and steal from you. Diane wasn't like that. She was a drug addict. She wasn't no thief. She didn't drink. She was basically a quiet person. The Nightmare House. At this point, the community was more than fed up with all the disappearances, all these African-American women vanishing in such a short amount of time in such a small area. It's frankly ridiculous that no action was taken. The folks on the street started to spread word and start looking for themselves. Anthony Sal was among them. You'd think that would end up with him getting caught. It's in the casual criminalist rules, if I'm not mistaken, but the police uh, were so shit that nothing came of that either. 
Uh, wait, isn't it in the rules that you shouldn't be in your own search party looking for yourself? Could be. I feel like that's come up before, but I'm not sure why. It sounds like if you weren't involved in that search party, that's even more, like, weird. Then in September 2009, things all started to come crashing down. At last. I wonder if it's got anything to do with the police, or if it's just uh, he gets caught through some other ways, like community action or something. That'd be nice. Some vigilante, vigilante just murders him, finds it out like some Dexter character. That'd be awesome. Takes a little piece of his blood, puts it in a slide, hide it, hides it in his ventilator. That'd be nice. Ventilation system? Ventilator's that, that thing that helps you breathe, right? It started with a woman by the name of Latundra Billups. She'd been invited back to Sal's house for drinks, and in doing so, ended up captured, beaten, and raped repeatedly. She managed to escape, number five, but she didn't report the attack. Not hard to believe at this point, right? The police are pretty much useless, so why bother? Then a month later in October, a woman named Sean Morris came upon Anthony Sal on the streets, and once again he invited her back to his house. They relaxed, smoked, drank, nothing sexual. The next morning comes, and she's ready to leave, heading upstairs to get her things. Then, out of nowhere, Sal pounces on her, starts beating her, and then goes around to lock all the doors and windows, trying to prevent her from leaving. Thinking fast, Morris ran upstairs and right through the second-story window. Sal came running out, butt-naked after her, but all of this caught the attention of the neighbors who called the police. Morris was taken to the hospital and treated, all while Sal said that it was all a misunderstanding, sex gone wrong, and that he was her boyfriend and or husband. Well, that's going to be very easy to check, Sal. That seems like a bit of a tactical error. Yeah, sure, Anthony, it was sex gone wrong, and I'm Lady Gaga. Morris didn't want to speak to anyone about what had happened, but the incident caught the attention of a lot of people, including Latrandra Billups. That was enough to give her the courage to go to the police and tell them everything that happened to her. For some reason, and by the grace of God, it was Billups' report to the police that gave them the kick up the arse that they needed. An arrest warrant was put out on Anthony Sal, and a warrant to search his house was issued on October the 29th. Police surrounded his home, and a SWAT team was called in, busting down the door, looking for Anthony. It wasn't a home. What they found was much worse. Remember how Ed Gein's house was full of body parts of his victims from those graves he robbed? Or how about John Wayne Gacy and how he had the corpses of almost 30 young men stuffed into the cruel space of his home? We have a similar situation here, and we finally get the real answer as to what that hideous smell was that plagued the neighborhood for two years. Oh, we knew the answer. <laughs> Matt, we already knew what that smell was. Entering the house, the smell was overpowering and near vomit-inducing. So how did people go to his house? He was like, yeah, come back to my house, we'll smoke some crack and drink some alcohol. And people go in there, and it's like, it smells like dead bodies in here. And people are just like, cool. I guess if, you know, alcohol, drugs, powerful things. That's intense, though. I guess because I'm not addicted to these things. If I went to someone's house, and they were like, you want a beer? I'd be like, mate, it smells like there's dead body in here. And I'd be like, yeah, no, it's just part of it. You still want that beer? <laughs> like, no, let's go to the pub. Although I remember my parents, they, uh, it, was, it wasn't there. I think it was at their holiday house. And, uh, like, a rat or a mouse had died somewhere in, like, the walls or something. And or I think it was under a tile floor or something, like, in the crawl space or whatever you call it. And it had died in there, and that house stank for, like... I was there for, like, a weekend, and it was pretty bad. You got to have the windows open all the time. My parents were like, yeah, it's, like, three weeks. And then eventually it obviously stopped rotting, and the smell dissipated. But, oh, boy, that was the smell. That is a beautiful story. And that was, like, a mouse... Or whatever. Apparently. Unless my uh, parents hid a body in the walls. <laughs> they didn't, I assume. <coughs> oh, God. Are you okay, boys? Dead flies littered the floor. Rat droppings crushed underfoot. It was disgusting. Uh, how anyone was able to live like that in all that filth sends a shiver down my spine. And then, 
There were bodies. Heading upstairs, guns drawn, they came upon two corpses, both women long dead, just out in the open for the world to see. Further searching of the upper floors uncovered two more bodies, long into the decomposition process. That's four, but what about the rest? Well, sadly, we're just getting started. Heading downstairs, the team descended into the basement, where they found a large mound of dirt underneath the basement stairs. Removing the dirt, they found another body, along with a human skull sitting in a red bucket nearby. That brings the body count to six. It's then that they go outside, and it's in the backyard of the house where the stench is the strongest. The smell that was blamed on a group of people. The smell that was blamed on a sausage company. Ignorance and ineptitude at its finest. In the backyard is where they find the remaining five bodies, either haphazardly buried or just left out to rot under the sun. This vile, demented, abhorrent creature of a man had lured all of these women to his home, promising them drink, drugs, and a good time. He then captured, beat, tortured, rape, and killed them, all without a hint of remorse, all through manual strangulation. Then he stored all these bodies in his home, where he allowed them to rot and decay, as he lived with the smell and the sight of it all. It truly is the stuff of nightmares. It took the loss of 11 poor, unfortunate women, but the police were finally on their game. For two days, they searched for Anthony's cell, and they eventually found him. He was disheveled, dirty, exhausted, as if he'd been sleeping outside in a bush for the last few days. He was finally arrested, charged at the age of 50, with the sexually motivated, aggravated murder of 11 women, 5 counts of rape, 4 counts of attempted murder, 2 counts of kidnapping, 11 counts of abusing a corpse, and 11 counts of tampering with evidence. Um, <laughs> tampering with evidence. I love they just throw it on the edge. It's like he's got five counts of rape and 11 murders. He's f***ed. He's getting a needle in his arm if he lives in one of the Yeehaw states. Which, uh, is, he, is Ohio that way? I don't think so. I, uh, again, I know nothing about Ohio. There's that great song. I'm a big fan of a, um, God. In what iteration was it? There's a singer called Andrew McMahon. Big fan of this guy. And he has a song called Ohio. It's a great song. That's all I know. <laughs> Oh, oh god my voice i'm not even gonna try you don't want me to try what are we talking about oh yeah horrible murder um oh yeah he's gonna get is he gonna get executed let's go trial conviction and a bittersweet end i hope it's bittersweet from that cyanide wait that's that's just bitter it's not sweet while in custody, Sal tried to play the insanity card, telling his interrogators that he'd been hearing voices for years and it was them that told him to kill. When that didn't work, he tried to make out like he was dreaming, saying that nothing about the situation felt real, that the murders didn't feel real, and that he barely remembers them. And yet he provided vivid and detailed commentary on every single victim, which is not a particularly smart play. How about you just do what your lawyer said? Do you have a lawyer yet? Have you lawyered up? Lawyer up. Sal's trial was repeatedly pushed back until it finally commenced on June the 6th, 2011. He originally pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but when it became clear that that wouldn't fly, he downgraded to a simple plea of not guilty. The trial lasted only a little over a month, with multiple surviving victims coming forth to provide testimony on what Sal did to them. It was clear to all that had they not managed to get away, the death toll would be higher than 11. It was on July the 22nd that Anthony Sal was convicted on all but two of the counts with which he was tried, including the murders of the 11 women whose bodies were found in his house in 2009. On August the 12th, 2011, he was sentenced to death. He was then transported to death row and imprisoned at the Chillicothe Correctional Institute in Chillicothe, Ohio. It was after his sentencing was read and he was transported to his new prison home that his deplorable house was torn down, harkening back to the opening of our tale. 
Sal appealed on multiple occasions, each time trying to get his death sentence overturned. His original death date was October the 12th, 2012, but a stay of execution was ordered based on his appeal to the Ohio Supreme Court being granted in April 2012. Yeah, don't they, um... If he was sentenced in 2011, there's no way they're executing him in 2012. Isn't the average time spent on death row like a decade or something crazy like that? Not that it's crazy. Obviously, like, every single appeal should be exhausted. At his appeal hearing, he and his lawyers argued many points, the most important thing being that he did not receive a fair trial because of the extensive media coverage, that the courtroom had been closed to the public during an evidentiary hearing and while a jury was picked, and that he had received lousy legal representation. To quote, Sal's trial attorneys should have had their client plead guilty, plead guilty to killing the woman and then focus their efforts on preventing Sal from getting the death penalty. Yeah, but they made that decision. And I'm sorry, but you make your bed, you gotta, you gotta sleep in it. You took a crack at not guilty. Is all or nothing. The High Supreme Court heard his arguments in September 2014 and in April 2016. His lawyers argued that his Sixth Amendment right to a speedy and public trial had been violated after the press had been barred from the proceedings. They attempted to have his death sentence reduced to life in prison, but the courts were not having any of it. They argued that his Sixth Amendment right had not been violated, and even if it had been, the evidence against him was so overwhelming that nothing would have made a difference. They also stated that Sal was clearly in no way remorseful of his despicable actions, and that everything put together more than warranted the death penalty. In December 2016, May and October 2017, February 2018, May 2020, Sal exhausted the rest of his appeals to the Ohio Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, the state of Ohio's 8th District Appellate Court. That's a lot of courts. They all rejected him. In the end, he was forced to wait until his fateful day arrived. Surprisingly, that day came sooner than expected. In January 2021, Sal contracted an unnamed terminal illness, beginning end-of-life care on the 21st of that month. And on February the 8th, 2021, Anthony Sal, the Cleveland Strangler, passed away at the Franklin Medical Center at the age of 61. It might not have been at the end of a needle, and his surviving victims, as well as the families of his long-dead victims, might not have been able to watch him die, but I'm sure they let out a sigh of relief when the news arrived that a man who destroyed their lives was no more. Yeah, agreed. Glad he's dead. Sicko. A 21st Century Killer. Wrap up. And that brings us to the end of our tale, ladies and gentlemen. A tale of destructive man who ruined everything and everyone in his wake, sending shockwaves through the city of Cleveland that terrify folks even to this day. And it's also a story of how the police completely and utterly failed the people who they were sworn to protect. It doesn't matter if they were drug addicts, it doesn't matter if they were black. They were people, same as you and I, and they did not deserve the savage and horrifying end that befell them. Had the police stepped in when they were needed, had they been bothered to do their jobs, none of this might have happened. And that it's truly the saddest part. This whole mess could have been prevented, and it just wasn't. You want to know the really scary part, though? The fact that this was so recent. Think about it. What do we think of when we think of the term serial killer? We think of killers of times long past. We think of the 70s and 80s, with the golden age of serial killers being in full swing. The Big Four, Bundy, Gacy, Dharma, Ridgeway, all on the loose. The closest most would consider when we think of the serial killers is perhaps during the 90s. This was 2008, 2009. This was less than 20 years ago that the beast was killing willy-nilly, and he's already been described by most as one of the most infamous and despicable killers in American history. This generation has an air of invincibility about them, like they're untouchable, but this can't be further from the truth, and this case proves it. When studying killers of old, it's interesting, it's fascinating even. When things are so recent and close to home, it goes to show 
but evil is always present, no matter the time period. The plot of land where 12205 Imperial Avenue once stood was a vacant lot for many years after the house was destroyed. However, on July the 16th, 2021, months after his death, ground was broken on his former property with the creation of the Garden of Eleven Angels Memorial. And on November the 6th, 2021, it was completed and officially dedicated to the 11 lives lost at the, hand of the hands of the murderous monster. It's with them that we end this story today. For it is them that should be remembered and should be mourned. Not the piece of garbage that took them away. Crystal Dozier, Tashana Culver, Tashana Long, Michelle Mason, Tony Carmichael, Kimmy Vet Smith, Nancy Cobbs, Amelda Hunter, Janice Webb, Talisha Fultzen, Diane Turner. Rest in peace. And that's where we end today's episode. Sad one. Recent one. No comments. And uh, yeah, I'll see you next time. <clears throat>